scripture reading this morning is from the book of Acts. That's chapter 28. And if you have your uh, own Bible with you, so Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, or if you've got one of the Bibles from the front, it's page 802, I think. Or you can always just flip over your message notes. Please listen for the Word of God. This is verses 1 through 16, chapter 28. Once we were safe on shore, we learned that we were on the island of Malta. The people of the island were very kind to us. It was cold and rainy, so they built a fire on the shore to welcome us. As Paul gathered an armful of sticks and was laying them on the fire, a poisonous snake, driven out by the heat, bit him on the hand. The people of the island saw it hanging from his hand and said to each other, A murderer, no doubt. Though he escaped the sea, justice will not permit him to live. But Paul shook off the snake into the fire and was unharmed. The people waited for him to swell up or suddenly drop dead. But when they had waited a long time and saw that he wasn't harmed, they changed their minds and decided he was a god. Near the shore where we landed was an estate belonging to Publius, the chief official of the island. He welcomed us and treated us kindly for three days. As it happened, Publius's father was ill with fever and dysentery. Paul went in and prayed for him, and laying his hands on him, he healed him. Then all the other sick people on the island came and were healed. As a result, we were showered with honors, and when the time came to sail, people supplied us with everything we would need for the trip. It was three months after the shipwreck that we set sail on another ship that had wintered at the island an Alexandrian ship with the twin gods as its figurehead. Our first stop was Syracuse, where we stayed three days. From there, we sailed across to Regium. A day later, a south wind began blowing, so the following day, we sailed up the coast of Patili. There we found some believers who invited us to spend a week with them. And so, we came to Rome. The brothers and sisters in Rome had heard we were coming, and they came to meet us at the Forum on the Appian Way. Others joined us at the three taverns. When Paul saw them, he was encouraged and thanked God. When we arrived in Rome, Paul was permitted to have his own private lodging, though he was guarded by a soldier. This is the Word of God. How many of you have ever heard of Hudson Taylor? Any of you ever heard of Hudson Taylor? I'll show you a picture of Hudson Taylor right here. Hudson Taylor was born in 1832. At 17 years old, he became a Christian. And when he was 19 years old, he felt a call from God to go to China. In those days, there was a burgeoning mission movement that had just begun, and he was at the front edge of that. At, at the age of 21, he went to China, and the age of 73, he died. In between, he began a movement which altered the landscape of the Western missionary endeavor. It squelched the opium trade there that was so prevalent between, prevalent between England and China. And it is largely responsible for the fact that today, an estimated 80 to 125 million 
Chinese are now followers of Jesus Christ. It really stems from the work of Hudson Taylor, that 21-year-old missionary who decided he was going to go. God had called him to China. In fact, there are more Christians in China than there are registered communists. It is, the, there, it is amazing the growth of the church there in China. And it began fundamentally with Hudson. There were some missionaries there before, but Hudson was uh, not content to just do what everybody else was doing. He wanted to do something new, a, a new way. He tried new things. He was uh, unwilling to let anyone who could miss the chance to respond to Jesus Christ. His influence upon missionary principles and practices is absolutely overwhelming. For instance, Hudson was among the first people to ever adopt the culture of the people group to which he served. Missionaries generally in that day were, all, were very ethnocentric, and they sort of assumed that Western culture was sort of equivalent with Christianity. It's still a problem we have today. And so they would try to make these people Westerners, you know, in many ways. They would create compounds where they would have them come and learn the Western habits and learn to dress like Westerners, to be like Westerners, thinking that that part of what the gospel involved. Well, it really didn't, but no one really saw it that way. Hudson saw it that way, and he was ridiculed by his peers when he decided that he would start to dress like what we'd call a Chinaman. He grew a queue in the back of his hair, cut him like a young man, and he, went and, and he found that they immediately began to accept him because he was embracing them as people. But he had to go against the prevailing wisdom of that day. The general pattern had been to maintain a Western lifestyle, and to seek to convert people not only to Jesus, but also the Western way of life. Taylor saw that this was an unnecessary barrier to the gospel, not to mention its ethnocentricity. And he chose to dress in the Chinese manner, complete with a shaved head and long ponytail, distinctive of Chinese men. That's how you see him there in the other picture. That's Hudson at the age of 22. This is him at the end of his life, same guy. Okay? Um, uh, uh, many, many missionaries ridiculed his decision, but history has proved that Taylor was right. Now, I first read Taylor's biography when I was a, a, a young child. I used to be, belong to a Bible memory group, and I would learn verses, and I would be given prizes. And so I meant to bring it with me, but I have a small volume that, talks to, that teaches me about Hudson Taylor. I probably first read it when I was 12 or 13 years old. But then I read an extensive biography of his when I was about 18 years old and beginning to study for the ministry. And here I was, 18 years old, reading about this guy who was 19 years old, a hundred and some years before, the same age as me. And he was ready to invest his life for the gospel. It impacted me profoundly as I charted my course and ministry. His single-minded passion to do whatever was necessary to carry the message of the gospel around the globe urged me to take my faith seriously and to never settle for complacent Christianity. There are a lot of complacent Christians, are there not? In fact, the older I get, the easier I see it is to become a complacent Christian. And one of the things that truly impresses us about the Apostle Paul is that he had a passion to do whatever he could to reach as many as he could in any way he could for as long as he could until he breathed his last. We've seen it in this book of Acts. If you've been following it, amazing stories, amazing stories. 
he's about to be captured by a, a riotous crowd in Jerusalem, the temple, and they're about to tear him limb from limb, and the Romans come to protect him. They grab him away, and now he's safe from the, the people who are trying to kill him. But before he gets up there, he realizes, I have an audience in front of me. So he says to the guy, can I talk to these people? And instead of being grateful that he's now able to get out of that situation, like you and I, right, would have been, he asks for more of it and say, I want to talk to you guys today. I'm a fellow Hebrew just like you, and I came to meet Jesus a long time ago. He wanted to tell the good news about Jesus any way he could, and we've seen it uh, throughout his life. He's meeting before kings and, and rulers, and wherever he is, he says, it's because of Jesus. You want to know Jesus. Even the great King Agrippa said, Paul, are you trying to make me a Christian? Remember this a few weeks ago? He said, well, of course I am. I want to, I would love all of you to be just like I am, except for these chains, he said. He wanted anybody to know about Jesus. You know, it's that kind of passion which gave us the idea a couple of years ago to say, what would it be like to have a church in a bar? <laughs> you know, I'm not sure everybody always likes that idea, but hey, take the good news wherever you can. We have an unprecedented opportunity to influence Cave Creek for Christ. Our ability to gather in, you know, a, a popular saloon gives us an open door for ministry to people who might never feel comfortable inside a traditional church. It's unconventional to be sure, but Hudson Taylor, ponytail and all, I think, would be proud to say that's a church that understands it. But we have a problem we can get complacent too. You know, there's not just six or eight of us like there were at first. There's a small group of us. We're not a large church. We can get sort of comfortable with just us. We need to find a way to carry on the passion for the goodness and the gospel of Jesus Christ throughout the next time. I have done a lot of thinking and praying about this church in the year 2050. How many of you expect to be alive in the year 2050? <laughs> well, we'll be living, <laughs> yeah. Some of us will, of course. But let's build a church that outlives us and serves this community long after we're gone, right? What do we need to do to make that happen? I don't know exactly what it is, but God grant that it would be so. It is so easy for us to develop complacency within our hearts. I'm guilty of it. Sometimes I'm just thankful that some of you show up to listen to me talk on Sundays. And I find myself thinking, Steve, do you really care about the gospel like you should? Are you willing to invest your life in people like you should? I mean, here's the Apostle Paul. Let's pick up the story where, where Richard just took it. They, they find themselves swimming literally onto the shore of this unnamed island. They've been lost at sea for 14 days. They despaired of all hope. Read this 27th chapter as you learn about their shipwreck at sea. And somehow Paul, because of his poise and his courage, though he's just a prisoner, becomes seemingly the leader of the whole operation. It's almost as though the centurion and the, uh, the captain of the ship, everybody's looking to him for direction, you know, because he had a vision from God that God would save them. So they show up bedraggled on the shore of Malta. And so let's take a look at this little story as we kind of move towards the finish line of this. And we see that neither a shipwreck nor the 
bite of a snake can stop the Apostle Paul from achieving what God has for him to do. So let's take a look at three things today. We can go on, Brian. We want to see in this first six verses the kindness of the natives. The kindness of the natives. Let me find my text here again. The kindness of the natives. We see that as Paul comes into there, I'm sorry, I, I, little, I forget that every week and every year my vision's getting just a little bit worse. I know, it's bad when you've had good eyes for your whole life. After we were brought safely through, we then learned that the island was called Malta, which means refuge, by the way. The native people showed us unusual kindness for they kindled a fire and welcomed us all because it had begun to rain and was cold. So here they are. If you remember, the, the ship had run aground out the way. This is an old picture, and they see probably the remains of the ship out there in the middle, out there in, in the middle of the sea. And they've come in, and here come a few, here come a few more. And these natives are so very kind to them. And they're wet, and they're cold, and they're hungry, and they're gasping for breath. And there's a fire waiting for them on the sea. That's why they say they showed us unusual kindness, all right? For they kindled a fire and welcomed us all because it had begun to rain and was cold. Oh, bitterly cold they must have been. Imagine how bad they must have felt and how grateful they were for that kindness expressed to them. When Paul had gathered a bundle of sticks and put them on the fire, a viper came out, and because of the heat, because of the heat, and fastened on his hand. The apostle Paul wasn't a leader, just sat around. He just said, there needs to be a fire. Let me go get some more wood. And so there's his picture. They put him with a halo in that old picture there. And he's carrying some sticks, and there was a cold viper in it. The viper w was, you know, probably sleeping. It was that kind of year. Put him into the fire, and the, it started to put the fire. The war warms him up, and he bites Paul on the, on the hand, okay, and fastened on his hand. When the native people saw the creature hanging from his hand, they said to one another, This, no doubt, this man is a murderer. Though he has escaped from the sea, justice has allowed him to live. Now we read that and we don't quite see what's going on. The Apostle Paul had been bitten by this venomous snake. And they say, this guy must have been a murderer because he escaped the sea, but now justice has come to get him. But you've got to remember, this was a polytheistic culture. So we have Neptune, the god of the sea, right? Paul had somehow escaped the wrath of the god of the sea. And so now that he gets on the land, if you notice in your Bible, the word justice in most Bibles is capitalized. Justice is speaking about a god, the goddess, Justice, DK, DK, has gotten him instead. This is a very superstitious people. They believe that everything has a cause and an effect, and so they see that Paul has gotten off. That's good. Then he gets bitten. That's bad. Okay, they're superstitious people. All right. When the native people saw the creature hanging from his hand, they said to one another, no doubt this man is a murderer. They believe he's a murderer now. Though he has escaped from the sea, justice has not allowed him to live. He, however, shook off the creature into the fire and suffered no harm. He shakes him off like it's a mosquito or something like that. Why? The apostle Paul knows he's not going to die. He's on his way to Rome, right? He's impervious, right? He shucks him off and throws him into the thing, and the people are surprised, and it says they're watching him around, okay? Uh, verse 6, they were waiting for him to swell up. Can you imagine they're waiting? Yeah, they're expecting something. They're waiting for him to swell up or suddenly fall down dead. 
But when they had waited a long time and saw no misfortune come over him, they changed their minds and said that he was a god. Oh, he was a murderer, but now he's a god, right? Superstitious people have to find a cause and effect for everything they make up their mind. And so because the Apostle Paul was obviously greater than Neptune to escape the sea, greater than DK to escape the viper, he must be equal to all of them. He's a god himself, right? That's what they believe. They, they're, they're, we see snakes and superstition in this story. And of course, you know, we ourselves live in a culture which was filled with superstition and ideas that are not anywhere near what the truth of God is about. The superstitious culture that, that, uh, that creates meanings out of things which don't necessarily mean anything, okay? You see, these people had no fixed point of reference. Do you know that in order to have some sense of what's right and what's wrong, you have got to have a fixed point of reference. Now, I don't know anything about the North Star. Some of you do, right? But you do know that sailors used to use that North Star. Because why? It was a fixed point of reference. You could figure out where you were or where you wanted to go or where you had been by continuing to evaluate where you were in conjunction with that fixed point of reference. Without a fixed point of reference, you never know where you are, right? You understand that? Without a fixed point of reference. You see, that is the difficulty in our culture today. We no longer have a fixed point of reference. Everyone does what is right in his own eyes, right? If it's what you feel like doing, not hurting anybody else, go ahead. You know, you can marry anybody you want. You can break up anytime you want. You can do most anything you want, you know. Uh, you can kill people who, are, who you don't like because you don't like their race. You can do that. You can do anything you want. Well, how do we say that's wrong or right? How do we know what's right or wrong without a fixed point of reference? If you're a follower of Jesus, you need a fixed point of reference. And what is it? It is the Scriptures. Now, granted, the Scriptures are not always easy to interpret, we have sometimes interpreted them inaccurately. We've sometimes made mistakes over the course of time. It's an, it's an ever-ending process to continue to interpret and understand the Scriptures, but we've got to have that fixed point of reference or we will have chaos in our lives and in our culture. The kindness of the natives reminds us that we must not become superstitious people, and we live in a very superstitious culture. We live in a very superstitious culture. So ask yourself, before we move on to the next point, what is the fixed reference point for my convictions? What is the fixed reference point for my convictions? You know, it's often asked, is it possible to be good without God? Well, the difficulty is, there's no fixed point by which to define what is good without some sense of who God is. What I think might be good might not be what you think is good. I may think having a, a boy instead of a girl for a baby would be better. So I don't want that boy. I'll get rid of that one. And I'll have, I don't want that girl. I'll, I'll, let a, I'll have a boy. In the Roman culture, that's the way that it was. The fathers had absolute right over the family. There's a terrible letter written that you see that uh, in, in, in the Roman culture, they've been found scraps of it, where this Roman soldier is writing back to his wife who's pregnant with another child. 
And he says to her, if it's a boy, let him live. If it's a girl, kill her. He had the right to do that. <laughs> you see, the Christian message gives us a fixed point of reference. You've got to have it. You've got to have it. So from the kindness of the natives, we see the fixed point of reference. But let's move on to the next section, and let's see then the hospitality of the nobles, the hospitality of the nobles. Probably because of this event where he had not been injured by the, by the, uh, you know, by the snake. It says, now in the neighborhood of that place there where the lands belonging to the chief man of the island, where lands belonging to the chief of the island, named Publius, who received us and entertained us hospitably for three days. Emphasis on his hospitality there. And it happened that the father of Publius lay sick with fever and dysentery. It just so happened that the Publius thought, you know, maybe I'll have Paul over. I mean, anybody who can take a snake bite and get out of it might have some powers. God is providentially working in this situation, right? God is working. See, the Apostle Paul, and had him more time, I could have told, told you more. The Apostle Paul just trusted in the sovereignty of God so that when the snake bit him, he thought, it's okay, I'll throw the snake down. The, the, the apostle Paul had, had understood that God was in control of his life. He had been shipwrecked. Now he's on the, now he's on the shore. Now he's at a snake bite. He gets called to go to Publius' house. And so Publius says, apparently, can you take a look at my dad? So, and says, and Paul, verse 8, and Paul visited him and prayed and put his hands on him and healed him. And when this had happened, the rest of the people on the island who had diseases came and were cured, and they honored us greatly. And when we were about to sail, they put on board whatever we needed. Oh, my goodness. Here's the Apostle Paul. We've got to see this in the context. He's just a prisoner on a ship, but somehow he's become the star of the show. Why? Because the gospel had changed his life and God had a plan for him, and he had a passion to serve God in any way that he could. So he shows up on the sea, and because of, uh, 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 the, because of his uh, ability to heal this person, now then, they're bringing all their sick to him because he had the apostolic gift of healing. And then when they leave, they give him honor, it says. They're honoring these people, 276 people on this boat, and they're being honored. Imagine that you are Julius, or Julian, I forget his name, the, uh, Acts 27, verse 1. He's a centurion. <laughs> He's watching what's going on with this crazy prisoner. What is going on here? This guy tells us not to go on the boat. He says, uh, I believe it's a bad idea to go this time of the year. And he was right. We went. We had a terrible shipwreck. This guy says, hey, it's going to be okay. God has told me we're all going to live. And he was right. We all lived. This guy says, don't let them cut off the boat and get off the way or, or we're going to die. And he was right. We all made 276. And we get on this island, and these islanders, instead of being upset that 276 people have shown up on their boat with nothing and all in need of hospitality, he gets, they get all this help, this hospitality. He's thinking, I wonder if this guy Paul has something to do with that. And he sees Paul get the snake bite. He says, oh, my goodness, this guy's unbelievable. And now, look, he goes to Publius. And here we are. We're getting treated with honor as we leave this place. They were there for three months. Yeah. He brought healings. That's the first thing. And honor was given to them. What was it? You see, the apostle Paul was finally back in his own element. There were people there he could serve. He could touch them. He'd teach the kingdom of God to them. He could talk to them about Jesus. He could bring healing to them. He could be an evidence of new creation there on that island of Malta. And so let's ask ourselves that question then as we look at this 
section of the story. When we look at what happened in there, ask ourselves, how can God use me to bring healing and hope to others? The Apostle Paul had done that. He found a way to serve people in any way that he could, and he used his gifts to help others. You see, what can you do where you live, where you work? What can we do to bring healing and hope to others? And then let's move on to the rest of the story in verses 11 to 16 of the next section as we see in that section the fellowship of the saints, the fellowship saints. After three months, we set sail in a ship that had wintered in the island, a ship of Alexandria with the twin gods as a figurehead. Those are the, the goddesses, the gods that are, are the symbol for Gemini, actually. These are astrological symbols that were often on these boats. I think uh, Luke puts this, you can go on, uh, Brian, to the next one. Um, 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 Luke puts us in almost, uh, he said, good thing he's on a boat with gods in the front that will protect him, right? He's just been through the shipwreck, and God protected him despite those things. But the Apostle Paul was on that boat, and so Luke mentions it, all right? And uh, with twin gods as a figurehead, Putting in at Syracuse, we stayed there for three days. And from there, we made a circuit and arrived at Regium. And after one day, a south wind sprang up. And on the second day, we came to Puteoli. And when they came to Puteoli, they were now about 170 miles away from the actual city limits of Rome. They were finally in Italy. Kind of on, not on the tip of the boot, but just up a little bit above the ankle, this part. And Rome is up a little bit higher up, okay? So they're in Rome, but they're not in the city of Rome. So they get there. Often, instead of going straight into the port right by Rome, uh, ships would come in south of it and then make their way up by land that way up there. So that's what they did. We, on the second day, we came to Puteoli. That's still a, a city today. I think it's got a different name. It's called Pozzoli or Fazoli or it starts with a P and it ends with an E, you know, put, put, Anyway, you can look it up. It's, a, it's a, a city there. Can you imagine living in a city that's like 3,000 years old? That's what, you know, 2,000 years old. Okay. Um, there we found brothers. Oh, my goodness. They're on Rome. They're finally getting into Italy. And they get there, and they find some Jesus followers. Now, Paul's never been to Italy before. He doesn't really know anybody there. But the story of his arrival has come, and so there are people who are greeting. Now, again, here I am. I'm Julius, the, the centurion, and he shows up. And we've been treated with honor the way out. And now look, there's people greeting this prisoner who are there. To, uh, and they, look what they do. There we found brothers and were invited to stay with them for seven days. Now probably there's not 276 still there. But there are all the prisoners and the soldiers. And so the brothers, this, when I say the brothers, I mean the church family that was there in Pizzoli or whatever it was. But, you know, whatever the name of the town was, okay? And they greet them and say, hey, would you stay with us? This incredible hospitality that had to have made an impact on everybody who was with him, you know, and it's because of Paul and his, his group of three or four guys. They're there. You see, wherever you go, there is fellowship because of following Jesus Christ. Because you have the common life of faith in Jesus Christ within you. So you can find fellowship in the midst, in the midst of that. Okay, so they're coming in. Uh, they, they found their brothers, and they invited them to stay with them for seven days. That's a long time to take care of people, but they're taking care of them. And the brothers there, when they heard about us, came as far as the Forum of Appius and three taverns. That's the saloon, three taverns, right? 
They come with it. That's about 40 miles outside of Rome. They're making their way up this journey. The brothers with them. There's this whole procession. They're coming in. The brothers are coming in. The soldiers are coming in. Thinking, I don't know what this is that's going on. All these guys keep everywhere we go. People keep falling. You know, in that culture, the typical thing was that when a general went away for battle, when he'd come in, he'd come into the great procession, his army behind him, come in, and the people would come to greet them as they came in, and the entourage would come in. Behind him would be all the prisoners and the stuff, the booty that they'd captured. But in this case, the one who's at the front of the party is who? It's the prisoner, the apostle Paul. He's coming in triumphantly into the city. This is the picture that is being painted. God's way of doing things is so different than our own. Okay? And the brothers were there when they heard about us, came as far as a form of Appian. They're following, by the way, the Appian Way. You might have heard the Appian Way. And, uh, and three taverns to meet us on seeing them. I love this. Paul thanked God and took courage. And when we came into Rome, Paul was allowed to stay by himself with the soldier that guarded him. This is a procession of triumph and then thanksgiving. The Apostle Paul has been on this incredible adventure. Remember, he was in prison for two years awaiting his trial. He's now taking this terrible ship, ship ride all over this. He's been on Malta. He's, going to, he's on his way towards Rome. He's never lost sight of that vision. And along the way, he served everyone that God brought in contact with him. But then when he comes in there and he sees the people from the Roman church coming out to him. Remember, if you don't, about... Two years before this, Paul has written his famous letter to the Roman church, but he's never been there before. They've received that letter, and it's a massive epistle, foundational. And in the midst of that, then, we see that uh, these Christians are coming out to greet him. And when that happens, Paul thanks God and takes courage. Well, let's ask ourselves then that final question. How can our fellowship help us thank God? and take courage. I don't know the journey that we're going to be on here in the next few years, but I am sure it's going to be a, an eventful one, an exciting one, and there will be maybe some shipwrecks along the way, some tough times. But let us never lose sight of the reason for which God called us to be His own and to be living witnesses of God's new creation in Christ Jesus by becoming a community of faith and love and hope, called to faith in the gospel of Christ, gathered in love as the community of Christ, sent with hope on the mission of Christ. Let us go, and together may we give one another cause to thank God and to take courage. Ready? Go team. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, From the perspective of history, it's easy for us to glamorize all of this, but these are just simple people following you the best they knew how. Thank you for the example of this little story, for the way that Paul was able to counteract the superstitions of his day and have a fixed point of reference, for the way that Paul was able to honor the people and to bring healing to them in his day and serve them in Jesus' name, and for the way that the community was able to thank God, and give courage. Help us to be faithful to our mission. Like Hudson Taylor, may we do whatever is necessary to reach as many people as possible with the good news of Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.